So my wife and I were having one of those days a few weeks back where neither of us slept very well the night before, and our infant was very fussy and just constantly whining and needed attention. He would not take a nap. And our toddler was rambunctious and filled with energy, and he was just this wild man running through the house, and he needed more and more attention. And we had played with toys, and we had rocked the baby, and shushed the baby, and nursed the baby, and I had wrestled with Levi, and our favorite activity, fighting on the bed. We had done it all, and yet it wasn't enough. There just, there was more energy required. And finally, 1.30 came. 1.30 at our house is quiet time where our son, our toddler, our, yeah, our toddler is required to go to his room. He doesn't have to fall asleep. That's the hope and the prayer that he'll take a nap, but he just has to stay there and just relax a little night. Usually he comes out about a dozen times with excuses like I have to pee or there's spooky ghosts in my room or something like that. But on this particular day, he fell asleep. And at this same time period, our infant fell asleep. And my wife and I, we stood side by side looking out our kitchen window she finally had a chance to take a drink of the tea she had prepared for herself hours beforehand. I put my arm around her and I said, let's just go, let's leave. Kids will be fine, they're smart, they'll figure it out. She said, the oldest is only three. I said, then he's in charge, get the keys, we got to go. Now I wasn't really gonna leave our kids, all right, don't worry. But it was just, it was one of those days, you know? It was hectic and chaotic in a season of life where our house is always hectic and chaotic, it seems. I know, I know a lot of you have been there and you've had your day where you stand in front of your window and you think, today's the day. If I can just find the keys, I'm out of here. <laughs> Sometimes home is chaotic. And we probably ought to clarify that statement a little bit because generally our homes experience two different kinds of chaos. One of them is what my wife and I experience frequently. It's just the absence of quiet. You know, it's the house is a mess and the kids are rambunctious and, and there's just a lot going on, but really it stems from a good place because there are people living together under the same roof as a family and that's just what happens when you're a family. A little bit of chaos breaks out. So, so in a way, it's kind, of a, it's kind of a beautiful disorder in some ways. The other kind of chaos that our homes oftentimes experience is not beautiful. It's the kind of chaos where we experience anger in our homes or frustration in our homes because our kids are rebellious or our marriage is rocky or there's this tension that just settles in the air of our homes because we're, we're trying to raise his, hers, and ours. We're a blended family just trying to figure out where the lines are or, or we just, in our marriage, we can't communicate for anything and so we just live in this constant state of tension. There's a kind of chaos that sometimes settles in our homes that is not beautiful. It doesn't result from an absence of quiet. It results from an absence of peace. Now, peace is something I think we all probably want in our homes, whether our homes are filled with children, whether it's just you know, a husband and a wife, whatever. We want peace in our homes. Peace is a blessing, and it's the blessing that we're talking about today as we continue the series that we've been in for several weeks now called Bless This Home. You know, we've been saying throughout this series that when we invite God's presence into our lives, that's when we experience his blessings. And the same is true of our homes. When his presence is found in our homes, in our families, that's when we experience his blessing as a family. And Jesus lays out a series of, of life attitudes and postures that invoke blessing into our lives. They're called the Beatitudes. They're found in the book of Matthew chapter 5. There's eight of them, and today I want to focus on one in particular. It's found in verse 9. It goes like this. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed. You want the blessing of peace? Here it is. Be a peacemaker. That's how we find that blessing. But there's something about that phrase I want us to pay attention to. It's not called peace finders. It's not called peace happen to fall upon it. Errs. That'd be a heck of a word, right? It's called peacemakers. There's a verb buried in there because peace is not something that we just stumble upon and it's not something that just materializes in our homes. Peace is something that is attained through peacemakers. So what is a peacemaker exactly and what do they do? Let's start there. To understand and appreciate what Jesus has said here about peacemakers, we need to pay attention to what he has not said here. He did not say, blessed are the peacekeepers. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. Makers, And there is a very big difference between those two ideas, even though practically speaking, sometimes we can get them confused. A peacekeeper is somebody who really tries to attain peace by avoiding conflict. We will not say the things that need to be said. We will avoid the conversations that need to take place. We will tamp down whatever emotions or feelings need to be tamped down in order to keep the relationship going, quote unquote, smoothly. And it really stems from the misunderstanding that peace equals no conflict in a relationship. But that's just not true. It's not realistic. Every healthy relationship is inevitably going to experience conflict, whether it's a relationship between spouses, a relationship between siblings, a relationship between parents and children. There's going to be conflict. In fact, I think there probably should be some conflict in a relationship because that's a good indicator that you are involved enough in each other's lives to annoy one another. It's true. It's easy to avoid conflict when you barely speak to people or see them. But when your lives are actually rubbing up against one another and you're spending time with one another and you're involved in one another's days, there inevitably is going to be conflict. And that's okay so long as that conflict is dealt with in a healthy way. But peacekeepers, we oftentimes try to avoid that conflict, which is kind of silly because we don't really avoid anything. Peacekeeping really only prolongs and intensifies a conflict. Your relationship is a lot like this balloon. In the course of our lives, we experience conflict. And our relationships experience some tension. They get a little tight at times. But as long as we deal with that conflict in a healthy way, things can go back to normal and they don't get out of hand. But peacekeepers are those who don't deal with conflict. Remember, we avoid it. And so we experience that inevitable conflict. But we don't say the things that need to be said. We avoid those conversations and we move on. But notice that the tension hasn't gone anywhere. It still exists. So we go through our lives and our family relationships and inevitably we experience more conflict. Sorry, I didn't practice with the microphone, sorry. So our relationships experience more tension. And notice that it's not gone anywhere. Even though we avoid those conversations and we tamp down those emotions, it still resides. Inevitably, our relationships are going to continue to experience conflict. And as if we don't ever do anything about it, if we don't deal with it in healthy ways, that conflict just builds and intensifies until finally your life is at maximum capacity. You cannot avoid the conflict anymore. And you have to speak and you have to have those conversations and you can't tamp down those emotions. And so you speak. And a lot of times it erupts rather than simply coming through in a productive way. 
Because you don't just have those immediate feelings, those immediate conversations, those immediate thoughts. You've got all of the unresolved frustration and anger and conflict in your relationship that you have avoided so that you can keep things quote unquote smooth. And it all tends to come out at once. And your relationship gets out of hand, right? That went a lot smoother in practice, I promise. That tends to be what happens, though. And if you want a real-life example of this, think back in your relationships. This is probably easiest to see in, in a marriage context. You ever had an argument that was disproportionately heated? Like you left some laundry in the dryer and forgot to get it out before you go to work, and all of a sudden you're yelling at each other and you don't even want to look at each other for the rest of the day. Like how did you get from socks in the dryer to divorce attorneys? Like how did we get to this point? I'll tell you, it's not because the clothes in the dryer were that big of a deal. It's because there was a lot of unresolved conflict. There were a lot of things that had built up and built up and built up and it all just came out all at once. That's what happens when we try to keep the peace and avoid conflict. Peacekeeping doesn't really keep peace. It just prolongs and intensifies conflicts in our families. Peacemaking is a very different venture. Peacemaking is where we embrace conflict for a greater good. And a great example of this comes to us in the life of Jesus. He is called, among other things, the Prince of Peace in the Bible, so he probably has more than a few things to teach us about peacekeeping. He is the one also that said, blessed are the peacemakers. So let's learn a few things from his life. We look at Jesus, sometimes people think, well, Jesus was a great guy. Surely he didn't have conflict in his relationships. Could not be further from the truth. In fact, Jesus experienced conflict pretty much every day. Every story in the Gospels is one where Jesus is experiencing some sort of conflict. You take one at the early outset of his ministry. He has this cousin named John the Baptist. And Jesus comes to him at the beginning of his ministry. He says, John, you need to baptize me. And John says, Jesus, you're Jesus. You need to baptize me. I can't baptize you. There's a, a conflict here. Now, keep in mind, this is a mild conflict. It's like a, a two or three out of 10, but, but not all of our conflicts are gonna be 10s and 11s, right? Sometimes we just have those mild conflicts in life, but those can't get swept under the rug. We need to deal with those as well. And so in this conflict, Jesus, he doesn't just say, John, you know what? Let's not make this a thing. Let's not talk about this right now. I don't wanna deal with it. Let's just get along. No, he says, John, here's the truth. Here's what needs to happen. You need to baptize me because this is proper and right and according to God's plan. That's a paraphrase, by the way. And John does. There's this conflict and Jesus doesn't shy away from it. He embraces it for a greater good. There's probably a more intense example found in the book of Matthew, chapter 16. This is a conversation between Jesus and his disciples, uh, some guys that he has spent years of his life with, his best friends, and people that he has called his family. And he says to them in Matthew 16, what's gonna happen to him when he gets to the city of Jerusalem? He says, I'm going to be arrested and betrayed and I'm going to be killed. And that doesn't go over real well, as you can imagine. In fact, what we read in verse 22 is Peter's reaction. It says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So Jesus says this plan and Peter pulls him aside and rebukes him. And rebuke does not mean that Peter was like, Jesus, have you thought this through? Are you sure this is what you want to go with? That's not what Peter said. He said, never. This is never going to happen, Jesus. There's a conflict here. And Jesus doesn't have this inner monologue where he says, tamp it down, Jesus, tamp it down. 
He doesn't say, Peter, let's not make this a thing. I just want to have a good evening with my friends. No, he embraces the conflict. And he talks about it with Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. You have your mind set on earthly things, but I've got my mind set on the things of God. And by the way, calling somebody Satan in your conversation, that's not the takeaway from this story, all right? That is Jesus's way of introducing some motivations and some conflict that Peter was not aware of. And in fact, in the section of of scripture that follows this immediately, Jesus is gonna outline that and, and expound upon that a little bit more. So he's instituting or he's introducing a teaching here. Don't, in your context or in your conflicts, call people the devil, all right? That's not gonna solve anything. But this is a good example of Jesus embracing conflict because there is a greater good he's trying to attain and achieve here. He's trying to complete the will of God in his life that's gonna save all of us. In fact, that's probably the greatest example of conflict resolution in Jesus's life. It's his cross. Because you and I, we, we live on this earth and we've made choices and we've done things and said things and lived in such a way that created conflict between us and God. That stuff is called sin. And when Jesus came into this world, he didn't just sweep our sin under the rug and say, just don't worry about that. It's not a big deal. He didn't say, just forget about it. Let's just get along and everybody be nice. That's not what he said. No, Jesus embraced that conflict. He died on a cross. He poured out his blood. He washed us clean. He atoned for our sins and he made peace between us and God. That's why he is the ultimate example of a peacemaker because he has solved the conflict between us and our creator. Now, we've been saying throughout this series that we are not in the business of making Christian homes, homes where we just go about our lives and do what we want and just kind of tack Jesus onto the side. We said that if we want to experience God's blessing and God's presence in our homes, then we will be Christ-centered families, families that don't just make Jesus a part of our lives, but Jesus is our life. His teachings don't just inform how we live. They are how we live. They are our foundations. And if we are going to be Christ-centered homes, then we should probably learn to be peacemakers like Christ himself, embracing conflict for the sake of a greater good. Now, what does that look like, practically speaking? Or put another way, what do peacemakers actually do? There are a lot of things we could say and talk about at this point in the sermon, and there are a lot of passages that we could look at. We could be here all day. But for the sake of time, and just to give us some focus in this time together, I've really thought about this, and we're going to talk about this in this particular vein. A lot of family conflict comes from this simple exchange of personal pain. You hurt me. Well, you hurt me. And we just go back and forth hurting each other without really resolving the conflict in a healthy and God-honoring way. And so that's kind of the vein that we're coming at this from, okay? And to that end, there's, there's a couple of really practical steps that we're going to tease out of Scripture this morning that we can start to put into practice in our lives if we want to be peacemakers. And the first one is easy to understand, sometimes a little more difficult to do. Speak the truth in love. If you want to be a peacemaker in your home, then speak the truth in love. Our words matter. Listen to what the Apostle Paul has to say in the book of Ephesians chapter 4. This is verse 14. He says, Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. 
Now, this section of scripture, it comes in a larger section that's all about unity and how to maintain and foster unity in their church. And the Ephesians, they lived in a culture where there were a lot of ideas floating around about life and religion and relationships that really were just false and contrary to what God would have people live like. Does that sound familiar to any of us? We live in that same kind of world. And Paul is saying to the people in this ancient church, when we are mature, meaning when we look more like Christ in our lives, which is our goal, right? When we are mature, we will no longer be swayed by these false ideas in our culture and in our world, but instead, we will speak the truth in love. That was true of that ancient church. It's true of our families as well. Whenever we are mature, when we have grown to look more like Christ in our families, we will be unified. We will experience that peace. We will be peacemakers, and we will speak the truth in love. But as we said, the Ephesians were not the only ones who live in a culture filled with false and deceptive ideas. We live in that kind of culture too, especially when it comes to these concepts of truth and love and their relationship to one another. There are a lot of false ideas out there about what it means to speak the truth in love or if you can even speak the truth in love. On the one hand, a lot of very common deceptive ideas that sometimes the truth need not be spoken in love. In fact, if you're going to be honest, the saying goes or the thinking goes, sometimes you can't speak the truth in love. I'm just blunt. I just tell it like it is. I speak my mind. If you've ever said that or you've interacted with somebody with that attitude, chances are good they have bought into this lie. But here's the truth. Well, reality. When the truth is spoken without love, it's really nothing more than disrespect. It really is. I mean, the truth is not meant to be a billy club. It's not meant to be something that wounds. It's not something to be meant to be something that harms. In fact, the truth is meant to give us life. The truth is meant to set us free, and yet we can use it to wound and as a weapon if we speak it without love. Truth minus love equals disrespect. And when there is disrespect in our homes, there cannot be peace. Let me give you a hypothetical example. Let's say that your five foot nothing son comes to you and says, mom, dad, I put a lot of thought into this. I am going to be a professional basketball player. I don't have a backup plan. In fact, I can't even afford to put any energy into coming up with a backup plan because I am all in on this basketball thing. Now, your first thought might be you're an idiot. Or it might be you are throwing your future away. Or it might be, look at you, that is never going to happen. And one or all of those things may be true, but none of those statements are loving. And all of those statements are going to have one of two effects on your teenage son. They are either going to hurt him or they are going to anger him, probably both. And in either case, you have not protected or promoted peace in your home. Truth without love just equals disrespect. Your cooking sucks. You look fat in that. I don't like your friends. I wish you were more like so-and-so. All of these things maybe have been said in our homes before. Maybe they have been thought in our heads before. They might be true, but they are not loving. Disrespectful and brash and blunt, yes, but loving, no. None of these things spoken aloud in this way are going to promote or produce peace. They are only going to promote and produce turmoil and tension in our homes. If we want to be peacemakers, speak the truth in love. That's one 
deceptive idea that sometimes people buy into in our culture. The other is the flip side of that. Sometimes there's this lie that in order to be loving, we have to downplay the truth. That's the flip side. You know, it's, it's not really a big deal. Let's, let's not talk about it right now. I, I'm fine. Everything's fine. It's okay. Let's just move on. Let's, let's move on to a different subject. If you've ever said that, or you've ever interacted with somebody who's thought, said that, you may be interacting with somebody who's bought into this lie that in order to be loving, I have to downplay the truth about how I really feel, how I really think, how things have really impacted me or affected me. And a lot of times peacekeepers can fall into this trap and this lie because we love the people in our lives and we want to maintain those relationships and we want it to be smooth. We don't want to make waves. We don't want to make conflict. Remember, we want to avoid conflict as peacekeepers, but we can't. If we downplay the truth and we lie about how we feel and we lie about what we think and we lie about how we're really impacted and how we really have been hurt, it's just going to build and build and build and we're going to have another balloon situation on our hands, remember? Speaking love without truth is disrespect. It's disrespect to yourself. You see, I can't read my wife's mind. I can't read my children's mind. They can't read my mind unless the truth is vocalized unless it's expressed and said aloud, we can't embrace it. We can't move towards it. We can't find healthy resolution unless the truth really is spoken aloud. A great example of this is this past week, my wife and I had one of these moments. I have not in the past been great about picking my whiskers up off the bathroom sink. Can I get an amen, fellas? It's a struggle, all right? And, and a lot of times I would leave the bathroom and she would tell me and tell me again, hey, you left whiskers on the sink. It's not because I, I you know, am lazy. It's just I have really bad eyesight. I can't see Craig. Like, I know that's Craig because I saw him earlier, but I can't tell who that is. Like, my eyes are terrible and I just couldn't see them. But I made an effort. And I'm like, all right, I'm gonna pick up these whiskers. I'm gonna clean them up. And I've been getting better. Well, this week my wife came to me and she acknowledged that. She said, you have been doing a great job cleaning your whiskers off the bathroom sink. I really appreciate that but I also need you to put in just as much effort to clean your hair off of the bathroom sink. Whenever you leave it and there's just a bunch of hair there, I feel disrespected and I feel like you don't appreciate the time I put in to clean that up. And she didn't say that in an accusing way. She said that just to speak the truth. And of course, I, I don't want my wife to feel dis, uh, disrespected or, or underappreciated. And so it concerned me a great deal and, and I've made efforts to clean up my hair. But I'll tell you the truth, it concerned me in another way too. I didn't realize I was losing that much hair, y'all. <laughs> My dad is all but bald. And I, I can't pull off the tough guy bald look. I'm just too scrawny, okay? So if there's, if there's so much hair that it has caused an issue in our marriage, that's, that's grounds for terror. I'm very afraid. No, but all that to say, if we speak love without truth, it's disrespectful to how we really feel. If we really want peace, if we really want to engage with that tension in a healthy way and, and diffuse it in a God-honoring way, then the truth must be spoken in love. It's only when those two concepts are held equally in balance with each other that we can really make strides towards peace. You heard in the video a bunch of disrespectful and hurtful things being said in those homes between parents and children and spouses. Maybe you heard those and you winced because, oh, I just don't like the way that sounds. Or maybe you winced because, oh, that kind of sounds like my house. We need to listen to this, truth and love together. We need to be able to speak the truth in a way that doesn't diminish or demean or wound whoever we're interacting with. And we need to be able to really express how we feel in such a way that it isn't gonna be challenged and beat down by our family members, truth and love. Only then can we make strides towards 
peacemaking. That's step one. Here's another practical thing that we can start to implement. Own up to your own sins. It's so simple. Just own up to your own sins. If there is conflict in our relationships and in our homes, and we're going to deal with it honestly, then we need to recognize there's a really good chance that part of this is my fault. I mean, you think about it, the nature of conflict, there's, there's two parties, right? If you're one of them, you have a 50% chance of being to blame. It's pretty good odds. We need to at least consider it. We need to own up to our own sins. This is what the book of James says in chapter 5. It says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now, in this context, James is talking about physical healing. And yet, when he talks about confession, there is so much truth here for those ailments of our hearts as well. Our relationships can be healed through confession, simply owning up to our own sins. If you think about it, if a lot of family pain is just the result of that exchange of you hurt me, well, you hurt me, and we just keep hurting each other and going round and round and round, that cycle is never going to stop until somebody has the courage to say, wait a minute, I hurt you? I'm sorry I did that. Will you forgive me? You see, all of a sudden, that changes the course of a conversation. It's no longer this cycle of pain. Now we're heading in a new direction, and we're moving someplace where there can be healing where we can deal with conflict in a healthy way, and we actually can find peace. But I would give one caveat. When we're making these confessions, don't make excuses. Excuses in the midst of confession have no place. I should not have raised my voice at you, but you, nothing good is going to follow that statement. Anything that comes next is not going to promote peace. It's only going to start a brand new conflict. I should have called you and let you know ahead of time, but whatever comes next out of your mouth is not going to promote peace. It is only going to further stir up conflict. Excuses amidst apologies are nothing more than our pride trying to crawl its way out of the grave. When we apologize and we confess, we are so close to putting that pride down, but those excuses just give it one more leg to stand on. And when we elevate ourselves in pride, we alienate ourselves from peace because rarely, if ever, can we have both. Just own up to our own sins. And the flip side of that is practical step number three, forgive and offer grace to others. Forgive and extend grace. If we want people to forgive us and we want to receive grace, it's only right that we offer it to others. And whenever we talk about forgiveness, there's always this little voice inside of people that says, whoa, 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 whoa. You, you don't know what they said to me. You don't know what they did to me. How am I supposed to forgive? Well, let me tell you how you're supposed to forgive. It's Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. Bear with each other, And forgive one another. If any of you has grievance against someone, here it is. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Let's all say that last line together. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. One more time. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Those are powerful, powerful words. But sometimes when we read them, we imagine that there's this little asterisk next to that passage. 
with a footnote at the bottom that says, my pain's excluded. You don't know what they said to me. You don't know what they've done to me. And you know what? You're right. I don't know how your family has sinned against you. Maybe you grew up in an abusive home. Or maybe your family is responsible for a lot of stress and turmoil in your life. Maybe your spouse ran around on you and betrayed you. Maybe your family sinned against you in some way I have no clue how to even express. I I really don't know. I don't know your pain. I don't know what you've been through. But here's what I do know. I know that every single one of us in this room, without exception, at some point in our lives made a choice to speak or to act in such a way that invited sin and chaos into our lives and created conflict between us and God. And I know that with those words that we chose, we spoke them intending to hurt and harm and demean the people that God created and loves and that Jesus died for. And I know that every one of us in this room, without exception, with those words that we spoke at some point in our lives, sacrificed our own integrity and honesty on the altar of expediency. It was just faster and easier. And I know that with the actions that every single one of us have chosen, full sobriety and with full intent, we have contributed to the darkness and the moral decay of the world that we see today. We watch the news and we say, how did things get this bad? We all have a bit of ownership to take in the condition of things today because of our sin. And I know without a shadow of a doubt, every single one of us in this room, through the things that we chose to do and the things that we chose to say, all figuratively and and symbolically, we picked up a hammer, we drove nails through the arms of the Son of God, and we stood in a crowd and we shouted, crucify him with our own sin. That was the choice we made. That was the consequence of our offense. We made that choice. And yet, here's what I know too. God has forgiven us of all of it. The Lord has forgiven you because of the blood of Jesus. And that conflict that was between us, that separated us from heaven and life and and condemned us to hell, has been paid for and is abolished. And a gift of joy and life and grace has been offered to you freely because the Lord forgave you in Christ. That is how you've been forgiven. No asterisks, no footnote just grace. And we are called in this passage to forgive as the Lord has forgiven us. Amen? That's how we forgive. We extend grace the same way that we have been offered grace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. We've talked a lot about peacemakers in the first part of that passage. The last part of that passage is pretty interesting too. Don't worry, I'm not going to start a new sermon. We're out of time. But it's an interesting thing that, that deserves at least a mention. We'll be called children of God. There, there's usually a family resemblance between parents and children, is there not? And that's part of the idea here in this phrase, children of God. When we are peacemakers when we take these steps to engage with conflict in a healthy way that brings resolution, we are imitating the heart and the character of God because you never look more like God than when you forgive, when you make peace with those around you. If you want that peace in your home, if you want that blessing in your life, be the peacemaker you're called to be. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and for your truth.
It's challenging at times because it engages us on a deep, deep personal level where we have to take a look in the mirror and we have to deal with our faults and our flaws. We have to deal with our pains. But at the end of it all, we get to rejoice because you have given us grace. And we rely on that grace. And we are blessed by that grace. And because we have received that grace, we submit ourselves to your teaching. And so I pray that you would shape our hearts to yearn for peace, the kind of peace that Christ has purchased for us through his cross. I pray that with our words, we would seek to heal speak the truth in love. I pray that in humility we would confess when we sin and seek reconciliation. And I pray, Father, in imitation of you, we would offer grace to others that we might bring healing and make peace in our homes, in our marriages, with our kids, with our siblings. Father, let us be peacemakers and experience the blessing of your presence. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.